Elon Musk has nothing on Arthur Weasley. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for magical motorists. Harry Potter, so long as Dobby wanted to meet you, sir. Such an honor it is. There is a plot, Harry Potter. A plot to make most terrible things happen at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry this year. Harry Potter is valiant and bold. He has braved so many dangers already, but Dobby has come to protect Harry Potter, to warn him, even if he does have to shut his ears in the oven door later. Harry Potter must not go back to Hogwarts. I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. You're listening to episode seven, which is also the first episode of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Here we are in book two. How you feeling? I feel great. I hope Elon Musk hears this so he starts making flying cars because gauntlet thrown down. <laughs> that's what that's what's going to convince Elon Musk that that's next. In my mind, that's what he responds to. Actually, flying cars are a terrible idea for a variety of technological reasons, but magical ones work just fine. They don't. We are going to find oh, that yeah. out incredibly soon. <laughs> but they anyway. are fun as heck. Anyway, getting back on the road. So this week's chapters are the first three chapters of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, which are The Worst Birthday, Dobby's Warning, and The Burrow. This podcast will contain adult language and spoilers for this and future books in the Harry Potter canon. It will also contain adult themes. This week, we've got some good ones. This week's adult themes are not getting to eat dessert, Forced labor, self-harm, networking, flying cars, and when mom and dad fight. Networking is truly dismal. Right, and only adults do it because adults have forgotten that it's the stupidest. It's an adult theme insofar as kids would never fucking waste their time with networking. Hermione would network. Ugh, I know, but that's because, oh. She would do it well, though. (laughs) So, what happens this week? As the Chamber of Secrets opens, Harry has returned to live for the summer with his abusive aunt and uncle, who are being very, and cousin, who are being very Dursley-esque. The Dursleys are preparing a special dinner for a business contact of Uncle Vernon's. Uncle Vernon is hoping to sell a shit ton of drills and buy a vacation home in Mallorca. Harry doesn't think that will change his uh, situation very much. Although Harry does have his own bedroom now. He doesn't have to live under a cupboard because he's using the threat of magic against them. Even though technically He's not legally allowed to use magic, but the Dursleys don't know that. There are some various, I don't know, the Dursleys are shitbirds to Harry because reasons. Harry's wondering why no one's been bothering to write him all summer and starting to wonder if the whole Hogwarts thing was just a dream. And then it turns out it is and the book ends. No, just... True. Yeah, the Chamber of Secrets is 30 pages, and it all reveals that Sorcerer's Stone was just a delusion. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that doesn't happen. Actually, what happens is Harry has to go up to his room because there's going to be this dinner party, but duh-duh-duh, motherfucking Dobby is sitting on the bed. Dobby is a house elf. And he has a warning for Harry Potter. He says, don't go back to school. Horrible things are going to happen there. Dobby also 
is, what is Dobby doing? Dobby's crazy as fuck. So he's trying to warn Harry Potter about some horrible thing that's going to happen at Hogwarts, but he keeps having to like bang his head against the windowsill or like shut his hands in the closet door because he can't talk ill of his family. Wonder who that is? because he is bound to serve a wizarding family. It turns out Dobby's been keeping all Harry's mail to keep him from going back to Hogwarts because he wants to convince him he has no friends. Harry's not keen on Dobby's advice, so Dobby has to take extreme actions. He goes downstairs, he levitates a pudding, smashes it everywhere, frames Harry, Dobby vanishes, Vernon goes ballistic, ends up locking him in his room bars on the window and installing a cat flap. The Weasleys show up with a flying car. They bust Harry out of there. They go back to the burrow. We see our first, uh, which is the Weasley home. We see our first wizarding house. We meet Arthur Weasley for the first time. He enchanted the car and Harry gets to experience life in a normal loving household for a change. And think that catches us up. It's also Harry's birthday. Oh, and yeah, all these books start on Harry's birthday. So he's super, super, super sad because he thinks everybody forgot his birthday. So it's basically magical 16 candles. <laughs> Plus. But less racist. Yeah. Uh, but with more slaves. And no date rape. That's true. 16 candles is a really problematic movie. Yeah, it's, it's genuinely awful. <laughs> this is less problematic, actually, <laughs> insofar as Harry acknowledges that the conditions under which Dobby lives are horrendously wrong. Yeah, if this was Sixteen Candles, they would just be making fun of Dobby for having, like, a weird accent. Ugh, John Hughes movies are weird. <laughs> this is not what we meant to talk about. Yeah, this is uh, <laughs> next week on the Sixteen Candles Takedown podcast. <laughs> yeah, so we're back at the Dursleys. And they are being really extra awful. They're worse than they, they, they take it up a notch. Right. Well, they're very afraid of him. To be fair, I guess I get that. Hagrid does turn Dudley into half a pig. (laughs) Right. They have so far had pretty bad experiences with wizards overall. And now they know that Harry can actually do magic. And they don't know that he's not allowed to. (laughs) So I get being afraid of him. But that is not an excuse for child abuse. The Dursleys are so, this is where we see their anti-wizard bias come into play. They're so extreme on this. They're true anti-magic extremists because they're so simpering and obsequious to any muggle with power. But even though Harry has more power than they do, you'd think they would kind of tiptoe around him a little bit more or be a bit more accommodating, but they cannot bring themselves to do that because at the end of the day, they still see him as a freak. Yeah, there's this weird part where Harry is hilariously baiting Dudley. Dudley hitched up his trousers, which were slipping down his fat bottom. Why are you staring at the hedge? He said suspiciously. I'm trying to decide what would be the best spell to set it on fire, said Harry. Dudley stumbled backward at once, a look of panic on his fat face. You can't. Dad told you you're not to do magic. He said he'd chuck you out of the house and you haven't got anywhere else to go. You haven't got any friends to take you. Jiggery-pokery, said Harry in a fierce voice. Hocus-pocus, squiggly-wiggly. Mom! Howled Dudley, tripping over his feet as he dashed back toward the house. Mom, he's doing you know what! Harry paid dearly for his moment of fun, as neither Dudley nor the hedge was in any way hurt. 
it's like, do you guys know what magic is though? Because if Harry actually does magic to you, it doesn't fucking matter if you <laughs> kick him out of the house. <laughs> we talked about this in the first episode of the last book too. They sort of simultaneously do and don't understand the actual power at stake. Right. Because they're really, 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 really afraid of it, but they also sort of seem to feel overall immune to it. If Harry actually cursed them, like, they'd be fucked. Immune and or superior to it in a strange way? Well, they still sort of have this... There's They have this idea that he's going to, like, do a card trick. Well, they have this extreme cognitive dissonance, and this is, like, on a whole other level, but it's like people who want to say... President Obama is like incompetent and then turn around and say, oh, he's this Machiavellian overlord like who's going New to world order yeah, who's, king of, yeah. who's going to put everyone in prison. It is kind of like, you that. know, it's how people with irrational biases act. There's a lot of really interesting magical and non-magical analogs for bigotry. She writes about bigotry a lot. And actually, Chamber of Secrets is in great part about wizarding bigotry. Right. We're going to learn a lot throughout this book about the many biases that muggles and wizards have against one another. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and within their own communities. And within their own communities. So, which is really, really interesting. And it is interesting to open with the Dursleys having this extreme sort of xenophobia, basically, against Harry's wizarding world. Also, Vernon charges upstairs because he thinks Hedwig's making a racket, but it's actually Dobby, opens a door, and he says, I'm warning you, boy, you ruined my Japanese golfer joke. Oh, yeah. Yeah, We can only assume that's a horribly racist joke. He's also, (laughs) later on, he's telling a joke about, like, an American. American plumbers. Right, no. (laughs) Oh, no, he wants Mr. Mason to tell the American plumbers story. They're all (laughs) just muggle real-world racists as well. (laughs) My main question, why are they so obsessed with keeping him like their whole punishment after he fucks up the pudding is keeping him in their home and refusing to let him to return to hogwarts which i just don't understand why they want to keep him yeah i wondered this myself you'd think they'd want to be shot of him right i think in a strange way they are trying to beat the magic out of him they hate abnormalities right so So they think they're doing a good deed by Mm -hmm. kind of transitioning this they're like maybe he's gonna be a like a bad seed forever but at least we can keep this bad seed from having magical powers. It's very warped. It's a super irrational reaction. You think the first thing they would do is send him away. But they don't want him getting more ma- I, they they hate magic. It's interesting. It's in a grand tradition of books like this, but it's interesting how legitimately actually abusive the Dursleys are. These scenes have a farcical quality to them. Like the pudding going everywhere. It's perfect that it's got the sugar. They've mentioned the sugared violets over and over (laughs) and the mounds and mounds of whipped cream. So all of these scenes have these qualities of farce. But what's happening to Harry is actually terrifying. And I really like how she marries those two things. So you have this outsized, almost humorous set of characters but then if you drill down into the experience that our main character is having it's awful in a in a real world genuine way he's a prisoner in his own home right and he's starving they're like actually starving him feeding him some soup I mean, he's... Not enough. Not enough. He's not eating enough. He's a growing boy. I mean, he's also 12. Like, I don't know. You were a 12-year-old boy. I've lived with 12-year-old boys. When my brothers were 12, I feel like they ate like three or four dozen eggs every day. Well, they talk about how skinny he is. I know. he, But he should be eating more. So yeah, they're actually starving him. And you know what Luckily, I really... Luckily, Hogwarts 
has no calorie restrictions. They just feed you, uh, you can eat like 20 steak and kidney pies at Christmas if you want. It's true. Yeah, Lots no. He definitely overeats at school to compensate for his starvation summers. <laughs> but I really, I guess I really think that J.K. Rowling does a, a nice job of tempering the true peril and sadness in these books with elements that make them palatable because they are funny and delightful. Uh, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Sorry. Heather just caught a moth. I did. It was flitting around the microphone. I caught a moth in one hand. That was crazy. That was some magic on this podcast. Yeah, it wasn't magic. It was just a fairly fast Pardon reflex. Me. So why doesn't Dumbledore do anything about this? Yeah, I wonder that too. It's really messed up because Dumbledore knows what's going on. We have a sense now, and I think we find out for sure later on, that Dumbledore is always aware of what's happening with Harry. And I don't understand why Dumbledore keeps sending Harry back to people who are this legitimately abusive. (laughs) Well, there are reasons he has to be in the Dursleys' home, we've learned. Right. I just feel like Dumbledore could like throw his weight around a little bit and figure out how to finagle some slightly better treatment for Harry. Just lean on him a bit, you know? They're fucking Harry up more. Like, trauma doesn't just stop because you got to go to wizard school. Yeah, they could have turned Harry into little Voldemort. Well, first of all, treatment like this pretty easily turns people bad. I mean, Voldemort turns bad Mm -hmm. because he's ill-treated, partly. So I just don't understand why Dumbledore doesn't do anything about this. I guess he sort of... Can't be bothered. Well, or he, like, trusts that Harry is, like, strong and brave, but he's 12. Yeah. (laughs) You'll thank me when you're older. Yeah, I just... Dumbledore is just a really negligent main guardian. I mean, all of Hogwarts, they don't guard. Well, the whole wizarding world doesn't really guard its sort of like most treasured citizen very well. Harry could just get, he could just die. Of starvation. At the Dursley's house. And people would be like, well, shit. Here went (laughs) Harry Potter. Maybe we should have tried a little bit fucking harder to send him some food. (laughs) And as is the way in these wonderful books, the only people that fucking do anything about it are fellow children. Okay, but... The Wizarding World also has a lot of restrictions against interactions with muggles. So maybe they're trying to minimize contact with the Dursleys. I get that, but they're the ones forcing him to live with the Dursleys in the first place. Like, how fucking hard would it be to just give the Weasleys permission to care for Harry every summer? The Weasleys are clearly willing. There's magical reasons he has to live with the Dursleys. Yeah, it's like these are all things that I know. It doesn't make it any less cruel to subject Harry to this treatment over and over. Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty fucked up. It is. I think it's really interesting that the first thing that happens to Harry in this book is that he is basically being gaslit super hard by, it turns out, by Dobby. But he doesn't get any correspondence from any of his friends. Ron had promised at the end of last school year to invite him to stay. Ron and Hermione and Hagrid all had said, we'll definitely write, we'll definitely be in touch. And he's just like heard nothing all summer. And I feel like it's really telling about the experiences up to this point in Harry's life, that his conclusion is either like, A, it turns out my friends don't like me, or B, none of this was real. It's so sad to me that it's that easy for him to come to the conclusion that he's just alone again. Well, it'd be easy to think that if you live in a house where everyone hates you, so I guess Harry would reasonably wonder, does anyone care about me? It's another one of those Wizard of Oz moments where it's so possible that it's just going to evaporate into thin air. Mm -hmm. And I just, 
I, I guess I just like this technique of having Harry doubt his experiences to the extent that maybe it was in fact all a dream. Because I think that's a pretty natural reaction to the really stark contrast between what he just came from and like where he sort of woke up the first day of summer. Right. It would be really easy to say it's truly possible that I just had a dream and now I'm awake and none of this happened. It's kind of like when you have the flu and you're thinking... <laughs> Am I going to feel like this forever? It is kind of like that. Dobby is a great character, but Dobby does a really cruel thing. It's fucked up. To try to convince Harry Potter that he has... Well, and Dobby doesn't know that because Dobby doesn't... He doesn't know enough about Harry to know how hurtful it is. But giving Harry the impression that he does not, in fact, get to go back to Hogwarts and have adventures and be loved and cherished is like really a fucking bummer. Dobby knows enough. To think that might influence him. Yeah. Dobby is uh, Dobby is menacing a bit. There's some menace to Dobby. Um, should we talk about Dobby? Fuck yeah, Dobby. Dobby's awesome. With Dobby right away, we get another complication of the wizarding world. For one thing, we see another magical creature. And we haven't seen that many yet. We've seen the centaurs and the goblins. But the house elves are this whole other phylum. Is phylum right? I think so. Eh, something like, yeah. It's just... a word. <laughs> we also learn, I really like how, even though these books are for kids, there's a crazy amount of moral ambiguity to the wizarding world. We learn that wizards have slaves, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. Um, and they're not nice to them. No, they treat them really badly. The relationship between wizards and house elves, to J.K. Rowling's vast credit, actually gets a lot of play in these books. She complicates the relationship as the series progresses. Right, but you learn that there are rich old wizarding families who, along with all of their indeterminate amounts of... of wizard gold. Wizard gold. Buried deep in the earth. Have chattel-owned servant creatures. And in Dobby's case, they're viciously cruel to them. Dobby's whole like self-punishing thing makes for such a rich and strange scene with Harry, but it's like really sad and actually pretty friggin' disturbing. It's darkly hilarious. It is. That's a really, really dark scene though. Mm-hmm. I love the really macabre and really disturbing mentions Dobby makes of the kinds of punishments he has to inflict on himself. Like I love when he's like, oh, Dobby will have to shut his ears in the oven because it's this great twinning of a really funny and a really hideous image of this poor creature. And it's crazy that he can, that he self-inflicts these punishments because it gives you the sense that there's something ingrained deep in Dobby as a creature that forces him to respond a certain way to wizards. It's really upsetting. And he mentions that his masters encourage him to do more. For right. good measure. They just remind to, him when <laughs> he has to punish himself. To do, extra, to do extra punishments. It's great that this Dobby scene comes so early in the book because J.K. Rowling signals right away that things are going in a darker direction. But at the same time, you get a character that is in and of himself. He's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. It's a really great fun, weird interaction. And Harry, once again, gets to demonstrate his essential 
goodness by responding with a lot of empathy to Dobby's situation and asking right away, is there anything that people can do to help you? Which if you were in Harry's situation and you were yourself experiencing neglect and abuse and being forced to do things you didn't want to do, it would be hard to kind of summon that level of empathy for this creature that's also fucking you over. Like Dobby's been, (laughs) Dobby's done something really cruel to Harry. And again, I don't know that Dobby knows how much he's hurting Harry Mm -hmm. because in his heart of hearts, he believes that he's doing the right thing because he's protecting him from something much worse. But as we've talked about, there's nothing worse for Harry Potter and there's nothing worse in the moral universe that J.K. Rowling imagines than to be cut off from the love in your life. So in fact, he's giving Harry a much worse punishment than having to do what he does later on, which is, you know, have a fucking adventure again. Right. You know, as you do. But even learning that Dobby has done this awful thing to him, Harry is not cruel to Dobby. No, not at all. And Harry learns that he basically has carte blanche to be cruel to Dobby because that is Dobby's experience at the hands of all wizards. And Harry rejects that. Harry has a true built-in sense for other people's needs because Dobby's core as we learn is good but we don't know that yet yet. at this point he's nicely ambiguous and the Weasleys say "Mm, this sounds really dodgy right the Weasleys are like that sounds like he was sent deliberately to hurt you or do something to do something bad but the Weasleys also can't imagine a house elf acting of its own accord. That's true because the Weasleys live in a world in which house elves do only exist to serve. They give house elves no agency. Right. And And even for a brief moment fantasize about owning their own house elf. So the Weasleys who are very moral people in the wizarding world have this blind spot that you see right away. I mean that's just such a true statement about bigotry and prejudice is that even people who work pretty hard to be good to their fellow neighbors and to banish bigotry and prejudice from their lives, or even people like the Weasley who face it themselves. I mean, the Weasleys get a lot of guff for being poor and for consorting with non-pure magical families. But I think it's like just a true thing about bigotry that they too have places where they're not seeing their own behavior. Mm. J.K. Rowling just has this really good sense of how people's morality operates and she hasn't created any like perfectly moral characters which is nice because these books are about fundamentally there's a good versus evil struggle but none of the good and none of the evil is pure which is just accurate so there's a lot of gray and there's a lot of blind spots and one of the things that all of these characters have to do throughout these series is work really hard to get through the blind spots in their own lives so that they can become more truly moral characters. All right, now that we've taken the Weasleys to task for their unconscious biases. Just a little. Just a little bit. We've all got them. Hillary Clinton told us that. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what makes the Weasleys, well, let's talk about one of many things that makes the Weasleys fucking awesome, which is that Fred and George know how to pick locks. Get in, Ron said, but all my Hogwarts stuff, my wand, my broomstick, where is it? Locked in the cupboard under the stairs, and I can't get out of this room. No problem, said George from the front passenger seat. Out of the way, Harry. Fred and George climbed cat-like through the window into Harry's room. You had to hand it to them, thought Harry, as George took an ordinary hairpin from his pocket and started to pick the lock. A lot of wizards think it's a waste of time knowing this sort of muggle trick, said Fred, but we feel their skills worth learning, even if they are a bit slow. There was a small click, and the door swung open. So, 
None of them are allowed to use magic outside of school. Harry actually gets... Oh, I didn't mention this in the summary. Harry gets a warning from the Ministry of Magic because they think it was him who levitated the pudding and not Dobby. If they can sense that a spell has happened, can't they sense who... Whatever. Apparently not. Wizard surveillance is imperfect. You also get a good introduction to the wizarding bureaucracy because it gets this very legalistic note. From Mathalda Hopkirk. Yeah, via Owl. Okay. (laughs) So, So anyway, Fred and George value analog skills which I think is great. Yeah, it's really funny because magic isn't actually useful to kids for an (laughs) extremely long time. Like, they can't really be magicians until they're of age. Right. Right? Until they're out of school. 17, I think, is is coming of age. age. In that sense, what the fuck use of it is it to even be a wizard as a kid? And Fred and George seem like the only characters in the wizarding world that are like, we should probably know how to do things other than spells because unless we're in classrooms in Hogwarts, we're deeply (laughs) de-skilled. You're not even allowed to do magic in the hallways at Hogwarts. No, no. So, Although it happens. But meanwhile, clearly. so you're not allowed to do magic. But meanwhile, they don't know how to do anything else. Like math? Or... Numeracy, maybe, but we don't know what that is exactly. They don't know how to do math. They don't know how to do science. They don't have, like, home ec. These children are utterly devoid of real-world skills. And this is why I love the Weasleys, and it's not just Fred and George... It's Fred, George, and their dad, Arthur. They show a curiosity about the wider world that most wizards lack, and for that matter, most humans lack. It's so true. So Arthur has enchanted this car to fly, and he got away with this because he told Molly, his wife, that he wanted to take it apart to see how it worked, which I assumed he did. But the thing is... Most muggles don't know how their automobiles work. And this reminds me of an Arthur C. Clarke quote. He said, any technology that's sufficiently advanced will appear just to be magic to most people. (laughs) Which I think that's true for a lot of us. We're podcasting right now, but I couldn't tell you exactly how these sound waves are going to reach your ears. I could go learn, but I haven't yet. And nor could I pick a lock. (laughs) That is a nice thing about the Weasleys. There's a lot of curiosity in that family. And I think Fred and George, their intellect goes underrated in the Wizarding World. I don't think it goes underrated by J.K. Rowling. I think she presents them as geniuses, but they're very, very, very misunderstood geniuses. Right, they're clearly prodigies. Right. But Molly berates them for... (laughs) Well, Molly berates them for good reason. For good reason. Like, they probably, on balance, shouldn't have stolen the flying car. But they get good marks in school, but they eventually drop out because they're being stultified by they're wizard basically pedagogy. Mark yeah. <laughs> I mean they are. No, they're basically like wizarding Silicon Valley startup founders. They become entrepreneurs. They do. The Weasley twins are, I would say, among the smartest characters that we meet. There's also some commentary, I think, on gender in that. Sorry, this is something I think about all the time. Hermione is kind of classic girl smart, and the Weasleys are kind of classic boy smart, and she really captures a thing that I actually think a lot of young men experience in school which is that outlets and the vivacity of their intelligence gets sort of quashed whereas the more calm and staid 
output from your kind of classic girl smart gets like really encouraged. So I do think there's some commentary in there about how we treat smart young men versus smart young women in schools. And I mean, a lot of people, like a lot of scholars write about this Mm. because Fred and George, they get no credit from their teachers. And even though they get high marks, they get Ron mentions, but but besides them getting high marks, all of their fucking shenanigans, they have to be geniuses to pull off. Right. They're insane at potions because later on they make all these crazy candies that do these really advanced things and they're kind of up to no good. So people think that their work is no good. (laughs) And I don't know, maybe guys that listen, if you have experienced this, like write into us because I feel like anecdotally I've heard and read about the fact that a lot of guys who are really, really smart have this experience where their intellect is expressed in sort of a non-classroom appropriate way and therefore not seen as intelligence. That's what I meant by Molly telling them to be more like Percy. Right. Okay, also Percy turns out to be a fascist. Like, straight up. Well, we'll get we'll get to Percy's uh, fascism in a later episode. I but, know. But, you know, Percy is very... Percy definitely has skills. Oh, yeah. But... He's not smart like the twins are right. smart. Right, he's very, Percy's very conventionally hardworking. And Ron's not smart like the twins are smart. I mean, Ron's great, and Ron works really hard, and he does okay, but Ron is not a genius the way the twins are a genius. Yeah, I would say, yeah. You kind of get the sense that Bill and Charlie might have some of that and have just channeled it a little differently, because both of them have these really crazy adventure-seeking, out-in-the-world jobs. Yeah, Bill's in finance. But, like, in <laughs> wacky wizard finance. Wizard finance. Like, he doesn't work for Goldman. And, you know, presumably Charlie is like a dragon scientist. Yeah. He does the closest that we've seen in these books so far to legitimate science. Eh, potions, kind of. Oh, that's right. Potions is pretty scientific. Although they actually seem to be better zoologists than anything else. Uh Uh-uh. Wizards. Wizards. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, well, because wizarding zoology is very interesting. Yeah, they know their they 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 know their magical creatures. They do. So yeah. But I also just I think you're right that it's it says a lot about the Weasleys sense of the or the Weasley twins sense of the world that they get that it might make sense to just learn some non-magical shit and it also says that they are people who like to learn things for the sake of it right. which is just I think an inherently good quality and their, so. da- and their dad too yeah like right. I couldn't I couldn't tell you how a combustion engine works no but Arthur figured Arthur's out trying to figure it well, out well A he figured out how it worked and B he figured out exactly what part of an engine you might charm because presumably you just you mm-hmm. don't say like Chorus flyus. Yeah, well, the, ga- the gas pedal works. Yeah, no, it works. <laughs> like, he has charmed something within the mechanism of the car as it already exists in order to make it fly, which is sick, actually. That's yeah. very cool of him. So those those three Weasleys are just, uh, I, I love that aspect of their I personalities. Too. I also love that they're not, like, above stuff. Mm. I think a nice thing about Fred and George is they're not snobbish, They're not snobbish about magic, which the vast majority of wizards, we're soon going to find out, are really, really snobbish about magical skills versus muggle skills. Right. And in fairness, I am a muggle, but I think it's pretty self-evident from these books that it's like harder to make muggle shit than magic shit unless you're Dumbledore. Just the work that everyday muggles do seems harder <laughs> than the work that everyday wizards do. So I like that they they don't think that they're above an analog world. When Arthur sees that, well, I keep bringing 
kicking this in with Arthur. He no, sees that. Yeah, he sees that too because he's blown away by how he says it. It's amazing how Muggles have devised so many ways to get along without magic. Which, yeah, it kind of is actually. Right. We and have the we have the internet. He's he basically <laughs> the only character to give Muggles any credit in this world. Mm-hmm. Which as a Muggle I appreciate, but it also yeah, it just means that he has a broader view of humanity and what is and isn't worthwhile. And I also just like that the other thing, the Weasleys, in a broader sense, they're just not above sentiment and experience. Right. Like, they're well-liked and cool and popular, but they're not, they don't play it cool. No, they wear the Weasley sweaters. I know. And they're just great kids. Moving on with the Weasleys, we go to their house, the burrow. It's the first wizarding home we've been in as readers, and Harry has been in as a character in this world. And Ron's so apologetic about it, and it's so sweet how Harry reassures him that he says, this is the best house I've ever seen. And it legit is. The kitchen was small and rather cramped. There was a scrub wooden table and chairs in the middle, and Harry sat down on the edge of his seat, looking around. He had never been in a wizard house before. The clock on the wall opposite him had only one hand and no numbers at all. Written around the edge were things like time to make tea, time to feed the chickens, and you're late. Books were stacked three deep on the mantelpiece, books with titles like Charm Your Own Cheese, Enchantment in Baking, and One Minute Feasts. It's magic. And unless Harry's ears were deceiving him, the old radio next to the sink had just announced that coming up was Witching Hour with the popular singing sorceress Celestino Warbeck. This kind of connects to what we were just talking about, but a lot of their devices seem <laughs> actually less useful than muggle devices. Like maybe just go buy a clock. Like, yeah, their clock just says, like, time to make dinner. And it's like, sometimes I don't want to know what it's time for. I just want to know what time it is purely for the knowledge. <laughs> maybe just get a clock. Uh, we already know that. Okay, so for example, there's this part where Ron says at first they were pretty sure that the reason Harry wasn't getting in their, any of their letters is that their owl, Errol... Is old as fuck. And collapses on deliveries all the time, which, is like, heads up, doesn't happen with the U.S. Postal Service. <laughs> like, or even... Or presumably, you know, or the British UK Post. Post. Yeah. So even our... I mean, because at this point, like, we can send fucking emails. But even <laughs> our most basic and analog ways of sharing information are more consistent than owls. <laughs> I will warrant 100% that owls are cooler. Yeah. Points are style, but not efficiency. No. And also, that's like animal cruelty. Like if Errol is regularly collapsing on deliveries, like maybe don't send him on deliveries. That seems mean yeah, to a- me. A- Errol needs to be retired. He does. Errol's so, so wonderful later on. I love Errol the owl, but... Right. It's possible that he should just get to live on a little perch and not do anything anymore. <laughs> they can't afford a new owl. Well, Percy so, has one. Percy has an owl all to himself. Yeah, because Percy's a prefect. Yeah, but Molly and Arthur have to share this old-ass bullshit owl, and Percy is just sending letter after letter to his girlfriend. And polishing his prefect badge. Ooh. If there was ever an analogy for masturbating, that is it. 
so gross. I love her for that though. She throws <laughs> stuff like that in. Like she throws little little disgusting puberty references in. Uh, yeah. Percy, how many times? How many can times can you polish a prefect badge? Apparently a lot. And Percy if is you're like thinking about Penelope Clearwater. Every forty five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to find out. <laughs> uh. Yeah. No. The burrow's the burrow's nice, and the burrow is it's really nice to see Harry in a home because you get so worried about Harry in the beginning of all of the books. Well, he says it's disorienting because everyone seems to like him there. I know. Oh my god! And when she gets, she's just like, here, have eight sausages. I'm just like, oh, thank God. He needs some protein. I also love that Ron's favorite Quidditch team is terrible. Yeah, they're eighth in the league. Ninth, I think. Okay, well, the Chudley Cannons. So Ron is basically like a Cubs fan, although I guess Cubs are in the World Series now. Go Cubs. Do we like the Cubs? I'm rooting for the Cubs. The other team is called the Indians. That's true. Rooting against that shit. (laughs) I overall like the idea of Cleveland getting another pennant thing this year but i can't deal with their mascot draco's, that is... draco's team's probably like the manchester mudbloods the manchester mud the man bloods. the manchester mudbloods and everyone's yeah. like maybe we should change this quidditch team's name and I they're don't... like no heritage <laughs> heritage <not> yeah heritage <laughs> that's not that's not expanded universe that's just in my own harry potter <laughs> quidditch fan fiction that i just wrote just now uh <laughs> you know what thing about these chapters I was really, really struggling to come up with a major quibble. These are like perfectly constructed introduction chapters to this book. She's great at openings. They're genuinely delightful. Mm-hmm. She's great at openings and closings and middles. Yeah. But these three are particularly tightly constructed, beautifully done, well-rounded. These are great chapters. I welcome Dobby to our universe with open arms. He is one of my favorite characters. And it's I'm super stoked that he's here now. Welcome, Dobby, to the Quibbler Podcast. Who is your unsung hero for these chapters? Oh my god, I have such a good one. All right, my unsung it. hero is the gnomes the that gnomes. they have to denome from the burrow yard. A couple of things. First of all, just it's a super sweet scene, and the gnomes are really funny. Muggles have garden gnomes too, you know. Harry told Ron as they crossed the lawn. Yeah, I've seen those things they think are gnomes, said Ron, bent double with his head in a peony bush, like fat little Santa Clauses with fishing rods. There was a violent scuffling noise. The peony bush shuddered, and Ron straightened up. This is a gnome, he said grimly. Get off me, get off me, squealed the gnome. It was certainly nothing like Santa Claus. It was small and leathery looking, with a large, knobby, bald head, exactly like a potato. Ron held it at arm's length as it kicked out at him with its horny little feet. He grasped it around the ankles and turned it upside down. This is what you have to do, he said. He raised the gnome above his head. Get off me! And started to swing it in great circles like a lasso. Seeing the shock look on Harry's face, Ron added, It doesn't hurt them. you just got to make them really dizzy so they can't find their way back to the gnome holes. I guess the reason I really like the gnomes is because it's just one among many examples of this great thing J.K. Rowling does where she takes aspects of the muggle world and gives them substance and reality in the wizarding world. It's just hysterical to me to take garden gnomes (laughs) and realize them fully as these really weird, funny little Total throwaway, but delightful, literal throwaway creatures. They (laughs) denome by throwing them over the garden wall. And 
And I like that Ron's like, it's fine. It doesn't hurt them. We just have to like de- disorient them. And that at the end, you can see like a scraggly line of them like marching <laughs> slowly back to live in the yard again. And Arthur doesn't want to get rid of them because he thinks they're kind of funny. I know because Arthur's such a, he's such a soft, sweet man. <laughs> he's so nice. Which is why I think he's my unsung hero for this chapter for the many reasons we've already discussed. But in addition because he can't bring himself to thoroughly denome his garden. Apparently, he's one of my favorite characters. Uh, <laughs> he's one of my favorite characters. As I'm learning. Every single Weasley is a, just a beacon of light in these books. I love the Weasleys. Except the Weasleys, Percy. Even Percy. Percy. Well, no. but he belongs. Yeah, I mean, I Percy's, Percy. us- Percy's a useful character. <laughs> he was your unsung hero last book. Yes, because Percy has skills. Right, Percy's skills have a place. Yeah. It's so nice to have a family like the Weasleys in books like this because, as is always the case with J.K. Rowling, they're not perfect, and there's really complicated elements of their family dynamic that makes them non-annoying. But you can just feel the warmth coming from the hearth of the burrow and it's just the suker to Harry. They're the perfect family for Harry Potter to find a home in because they're messy and strange and big. I mean the one thing like Harry Harry needs a big family. It's so important for Harry to have a lot of people at once. It's crazy how every single member of the Weasley family loves him unconditionally right away. I think that's such a beautiful thing about them. Arthur's a great choice for an unsung hero. Go Weasleys. So next week we're reading more fucking stellar chapters. Next week's chapters are At Flourish and Blots, The Whomping Willow, and Gilderoy Lockhart. Gilderoy's so good. So get ready to meet that guy. I guess we sort of meet him in this chapter because Mrs. Weasley oh, has he's, his... he's in the... He's the book. He's the guide to household pests. Yeah. I like that he's this sex symbol, but also Martha Stewart type character. I'm sorry. Are you saying Martha Stewart isn't a sex symbol? I guess Martha can be pretty hot. She's hot as fuck. Oh, yeah. I didn't mean to demean Martha Stewart's sexiness on the Quibbler podcast. She was a model. All right. I, he's... No, I know. I'm kidding. It's fine. <laughs> You're fine. (laughs) But he's the male Martha Stewart. He is. He is the male Martha Stewart. But he is more overtly a sex symbol, I guess, than Martha Stewart at this point. That's fair. He's like if... uh, He's like Mary Berry if Mary Berry was like like a bikini model. George Clooney. No. Mary Berry's a woman. Oh, if Mary Berry was a man who looked like... Never mind. I'm fucking this up. It's just getting a little tortured as a metaphor. Yeah. Anyway, you know, he's a... I was just trying to come up with a UK uh, person. He's a lifestyle... He's a lifestyle guru. He's an influencer. He's yeah. a lifestyle guru. If he was a muggle, Gilder Lockhart would have a really popular Instagram. Oh, yeah. He would be Absolutely. like an Instagram celebrity. <laughs> uh, that's it for this week. This week's episode is brought to you by the Misuse of Muggle Artifacts office, because a muggle tea kettle should do one thing only. Not bite you on the nose. Yeah, it should just make tea. <laughs> the audiobook clips that you heard this week are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio, and they are Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. By J.K. Rowling. Available wherever you are trying to buy an audiobook. Audible, Pottermore, you know the drill. All of the above. Speaking of which, we're on iTunes, so please rate, review, subscribe if you have not done so already. It helps people find the podcast. We have been stuck at 16 ratings for like a week and it's driving me insane so if one of y'all hears this and brings us up to 17 i'm going to be eternally grateful 100 house points to you yep 
Arbitrary house points awarded in your direction. One last thing, we have a newsletter. It's very awesome. There's owl news in it and other fun tidbits. We send it out once a week with the new episode. Go to tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reply to the letter. So that's nice. Yep. Owl post again. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks, amigos. Percy's been acting very oddly this summer. I mean, there's only so many times you can polish a prefect badge. Get off me. Get off me. Get off me.